Most of us will never attempt to scale Mount Everest or even the Matterhorn. But we all face mountains in our lives, real challenges that require real discipline and real skills. We'll talk about what it takes to climb the world's highest point with Greg Paul on this edition of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? All right, we are very pleased to be joined today by Greg Paul. I'm going to call him world-famous mountain climber uh, because that's who he is. Uh, but there's there's obviously been a, a lot of interest of late uh, of what's going on on Mount Everest. We've got traffic jams. How can we have traffic jams on top of Mount Everest? Uh, and uh, a lot of challenges there. Uh, so first, Greg, thanks for joining us on There For What. Really appreciate you being with us. Great being here. Uh, so give us kind of your perspective as you've, as you've been watching the news and, and following what uh, people are doing doing there uh, towards the summit of Everest. Uh, what's, what's your reaction to the news of what's going on? Well, I think the media has pretty much been accurate with the story. You know, Mount Everest is considered by many the ultimate achievement. In the true mountaineering community, Mount Everest is sort of passe. <laughs> it's considered sort of a just a, a walk-up mountain, but that's if you're a real mountaineer. But to the general public uh, and the recreational mountaineer, that is you know, the ultimate high, po- high point, literally and figuratively, in, in climbing. So uh, it, it gets on a lot of people's bucket lists. Yeah. And, uh, and nowadays you could pretty much uh, pay for your way to the top. <laughs> and you don't have to be that accomplished as far as being uh, with mountaineering skills to go over there and, and give it a shot. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are uh, going over there. Fortunately, for the Sherpa's economic viability, there's a lot of people going over there. But unfortunately, from a standpoint of overcrowding and the dangers that presents to yourself and everybody around you, uh, it's a two-edged sword. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it seems to me, at least uh, from the reporting that I've seen, that uh, it does seem like there's sort of been a, uh, a lax in kind of the the standard in terms of the Sherpas, how expert they are. Uh, while, uh, as you mentioned, not the uh, the ultimate technical difficult climb, uh, obviously still a lot of uh, danger and weather and, and all of those things. Uh, and is it that uh, we have too many that uh, have put it on their bucket list and too many that have figured out they can uh, they can make money uh, getting people up there. Is it uh, is it time for some some more regulation in terms of uh, how they monitor and, and meter who's going up? Yes. Um, and there's kind of a double standard going on. Uh, originally in the 90s, a lot of what you call Western expedition companies started commercial guiding on Mount Everest. Mm hmm. And these were typically folks from New Zealand, Europe, the U.S., and now have been there for quite some time. They have have the experience. They have developed a, a Sherpa team that has been up and down the mountain many times, and, and they've got it nailed down. And they know when to pull the plug if they have to pull the plug uh, because of uh, dangerous conditions on the mountain, or they can detect when a climber is having issues. Uh, but as of late, in the last few years, some Nepalese expedition companies rightfully wanted part of the action. Sure. That's yeah. their territory. And then the uh, Nepalese government made a requirement that every climber has a Sherpa go up there with them, which is a good thing. Sure, yeah. But a Sherpa is not somebody that just climbs mountains. Sherpa is a nationality. Too many people just use it as this, my Sherpa. Honorable the, guide, yeah. The, a guide. <laughs> Like my Italian guide or my French guide in the Alps, it's my Sherpa. And that's not 
who they are. They're, again, they're a nationality. And a Sherpa has to learn how to climb just like anybody else. Mm -hmm. And they have to learn to deal with the altitude just like anybody else. And the more experienced the Sherpa is, the the better off they are as as your guide. And the better off you are for having them as a guide. (laughs) With all these new companies coming on the scene and they're pricing themselves to be very competitive, Mm -hmm. undercutting (laughs) the others. And they can't because they're local, but they have to have Sherpas. So they go out and, and get Sherpas. But those aren't necessarily the experienced Sherpas. Right. And they don't always pay them what the experienced (laughs) Sherpas get paid. Yeah. So you have this combination (laughs) of inexperience and lack of uh, just mountain wisdom that uh, is going on. And then clients that are looking at websites that are very well done. And it makes the new company look Look better than the existing company. Some of the existing companies don't even have good websites because yeah. they just get word of mouth right. or, you know, repeat customers. So you have folks just, oh, they look great. <laughs> you know, their website looks good. Let's go I'm with going them. with them. And there's no, when a, a death or frostbite occurs to clients, there is no company that is an expedition company putting that out on their website. Yeah. They don't acknowledge it. Right. And this year, for example, there's been 11 deaths on Everest itself and 22 deaths in the Himalayas. Mm. And you don't have any of the guide companies. Somebody else has to report report who died with what guide company. No yeah. guide company acknowledges that. But on top of that, and actually more astounding, is how much how many people had frostbite and other acute mountain sickness happen that they had to be evacuated off the mountain. Mm. And at least with frostbite, you got there's results that you live with for the yeah, rest of your losing, life. You you're losing digits. digits. Yeah. And acute mountain sickness, high altitude sickness, you're, you're losing billions of brain cells. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that, that is totally overlooked. Yeah. Uh, there's a definite need for transparency. And uh, I think guide companies being more forthright with their track records. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, uh, <laughs> I think we could solve all the world's problems uh, by just figuring out that don't <laughs> just, just do buy something <laughs> based, on, based on a good website or right. a low price. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's like your heart surgeon. If your heart surgeon has a, a good website and a low price, that's, that's probably well, not that, what I'm going after. You just hit the head on, uh, <laughs> would you go down the Colorado River with somebody that this is their first time Right. But really down? cheap. <laughs> or would you go get heart surgery from somebody that just got out of medical school? Yeah. You typically shop around and get a little more information before and you yeah. go and do something that uh, important. And Everest is like a life really and important. death. It is life and death. Thing. Yeah. So I want to hit one more thing before we get to your story and, and your uh, climbing on Everest and, and your achievements there. Uh, and that is one of the other things that has come out of a lot of the reporting this year is uh, just the environmental impact on Everest, the amount of, of garbage and abandoned tents and things just left behind along the way. Um, what can you tell us about that? And is that a con- something that we all should be concerned about? Over the last 10 years, at least, they've done a great job in cleaning up Everest from the past and requiring that anybody takes out what they take in. Um So I've been over there now five years in a row, and I didn't see any new garbage. In fact, the old garbage, it was collectibles. If you found an oxygen tank from the 1950s, it could very well be from Sir Edmund Hillary's expedition (laughs) or some other famous expedition. So there was a lot of items that if it appeared out of the glacier and climate change has brought a lot of stuff, including bodies out of the the glaciers there. But yeah, you would 
see old garbage coming out, some of it something you'd want to take home, other you know, they're getting rid of it. They they have Good. expeditions specifically to clean up to clean. the mountain. Good. The other side of it is that you have a like this year, for example, they had a cyclone come through and for two days the winds were uh horrendous up at camp two on the uh the south side and advanced base camp on the north side and it just destroyed the tents. Mm. And that's something that is not foreseen and it can't get cleaned up like immediately. Right. And but they do make an effort and there's a certain danger to, you know, be up there and try to clean it up right when it happens or <laughs> after it happens because you're you want to get up and down yeah, that down. mountain, yeah. especially in the death zone. But there's they're very conscientious regarding the mountain now, just yeah. as they are on our mountains and trying to keep it clean and getting good. stuff off. So that's not a huge issue as far as I'm concerned. Good. That's uh, that's good to know. Um, all right. So I want to get to your story. Um, there's so many there's so many great lessons uh, in in your endeavors there. Uh, and the one I want to start with is that, uh, as in most great achievements, there is a little element of of luck involved. Uh, and as you get to Everest, sometimes it's the it's the luck of the weather uh, or the luck of the draw, the timing of the year, the day uh, that you're up there. Uh, but just give us a, a little uh, sense of when you, when you actually made it to the top, when you were able to actually summit. Tell us what that day was like. Well, first, that day was five years in the making. There was an Which element. I'm going to just insert and point that that is a lesson in and of itself. <laughs> uh, that so often we look at these great achievements and we think about the ultimate. Uh, but I'm glad you pointed that out. That it was it was five years in the making. This is not a uh, an instant thing that like we see on an infomercial. Uh, this this takes some real effort and uh, overcoming a lot of obstacles. And to go along with that, you're over there for at least two months, and much of that time is spent at eighteen thousand feet or above. Mm. And it's not particularly a comfortable environment. The food isn't that good. It gets kind of old after a while. And there's a lot of pain, both physically and mentally, yeah. going on for that period of time. And it, uh, I, don't, I don't know what childbirth is, but it's like I always wonder how my wife could ever have another kid after she's had one based on what she yeah. looked like when she was having <laughs> one. A lot of people would wonder why I'd want to go back to Everest after I would report what I went through when I was there. Mm. But somehow you forget it and it becomes something you want to do again. How was the summit? Based on the fact that it took me so long to eventually get there and the pain, the training, the all that goes into the sacrifices you make with your family. And when I got up to the South Coal, which is Camp 4, uh, I remember sitting down in disbelief as I looked at the horizon and you could see the curvature of the earth. And I was like, it was hard to pinch myself because you have so many clothes on, but... <laughs> I just couldn't believe it that I was actually there because once you get to the South Pole, which is above 26,000 feet, you've got a shot at really making it. Yeah. Until you get there, it's always like there's we a tried. lot of things that could happen that <laughs> yeah. you won't get there. But once you're at the South Pole and it's literally four to eight hours before you're heading up to the 3,000 feet and one mile, mm. uh, 3,000 vertical, one mile to the summit, and you're looking at it and you realize the history the disasters, the tragedies, the 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 victories, all that went on there, you just like, wow. Yeah. This is amazing. But there's a lot of trepidation and at the same time and you're going, This could be the best day of my life within the next twenty four hours or the worst day of my yeah. life. Or, or the actually, last day. <laughs> or a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of people summit but they don't make it down. So mm. worst, best and worst. And worst. 
Yeah. Um, that's all going through your mind and in an environment where you can't, you have no, you're not hungry, you've lost your appetite, uh, you can't sleep, you're kind of worn out and you're in an environment that's totally foreign to you and you know you're going to be heading up into the unknown with wow. unknown consequences. And I, uh, I was the last out of my, uh, the last to get on the mountain that morning out of 35 people that were, that, that left. Wow. I, I'm slow. Uh, getting up in the morning, I have artificial knees, mm. and I have to kind of—they have to kind of get going before yeah. I, I start moving. And anyway, I was the last out of camp, and I was a little frustrated by that. I had anxiety. It was like, oh, I blew it. I'm, I'm already, already you know, behind. A deficit here, and I could see headlamps. You leave. I left at one thirty in the morning, so all oh, I wow. could see were headlamps heading up a steep slope to the what's called the balcony, and they were well ahead of me. I finally started companion who summited after me few about 45 minutes after me and he was a german airline pilot and he called it a super moment wow i'm on i'm the highest person i'm the closest person to the moon right now <laughs> i'm like I love that. i'm like the out of all the billions of people on the earth i'm the only one up here and i could not see anybody else behind me we had it to ourselves we were the first ones i was the first commercially guided person to summit Mount Everest in three years. And mm. after having known about all the crowds and all the things that go on, I felt really special because I had it to myself. And I was up there for 45 minutes waiting for my companions to come up. I wanted to have this like group hug moment, but it was spread out. <laughs> uh, the first climber in our group to the last was about an hour. So I didn't get that yeah. group hug. But uh, anyway... It was indescribable moment. Yeah, what a moment. Therefore, what? All right, uh, Greg, so that's, uh, that's the ultimate in uh, peak moments. Uh, we talk a lot about those on, on this show. And uh, as always, we conclude our show with uh, the therefore what. So, so people have heard just this amazing experience uh, and amazing life lessons from a guy with artificial knees on top of the world. That's a pretty killer one right in and of itself. I was the first one to do that. that was <laughs> Which is just cool. incredible. Uh, and so people's been listening for, for 20 minutes now. Uh, what do you hope people think different? What do you hope they do different after listening to your story? You get so absorbed as far as getting to the summit that you forget that the summit is only halfway. And for as incredible a moment that is, the most important moment is when you step back into base camp and you know you're going to return to your family and your friends. And you need to look at climbing Mount Everest, for example, as a journey, not just a summit moment. Yeah. And you need to have enough gas in your tank when you get to the top to get back down. And unfortunately, as was demonstrated this year, a lot of people, and it happens every year, mm -hmm. uh, they overexert themselves. They get this summit fixation and they forget what it's all about. Yeah. And it's about the journey, not just getting to the top of the mountain. And it's about getting home and being able to share that journey with your, your friends, your children, your grandchildren. And and that is a perspective you need to have, and you need to have a perspective of gratitude. The Sherpa companion, it's not your Sherpa, it's your companion that you're climbing with. You don't own the Sherpa. Uh, and I learned over, it took me literally four years to learn that, uh, to have a relationship with those people and to get to know them and mm -hmm. understand them 
and we there's a bonding that that if you let it happen, it happens. And that wouldn't have happened if I had summited the very first, first year. Yeah, I had no clue what was going. I was like a deer in the <laughs> headlamps when I was over there. So I'm actually glad that I had an opportunity to go back again and again because I developed a greater appreciation for the people and the culture. And the mountain was just, and the summiting was just part, part of the of experience. Yeah. Where for somebody that's going for their seven summits or for this one shot at Everest, they don't get. Uh, it's harder to get that whole experience. So I'm very, uh, very happy that I was able to, to get that and take that away, and that will always remain with me. It's, yeah. it, it was more than just the summit for me. Fantastic, great, great, uh, great lessons. We could spend four more hours or four more days uh, on just the lessons here from the summit. So we appreciate you joining us today. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is: Therefore, what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com/tw and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?